All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. And typical anti-government extremism. Uh, primarily focused on foreign policy, of course, here. We are uh, live on the Liberty Radio Network here from noon to 2 Eastern Time. LibertyRadioNetwork.com, LRN.FM. Uh, I got a website of my own, scotthorton.org. I got .net, too. That just forwards on. One day I'm going to get that .com, but right now it's scotthorton.org. I keep all my stuff there, man. Uh, 4,000-something interviews going back to 2003 at scotthorton.org. And um, you join up the chat room, which I forgot to do here. Tools, chatzilla, chatzilla. Um, so IRC join channel. Um, it's a, uh, free node network. And then the channel is hashtag Scott Horton show, or you can just go to, uh, scotthorton.org slash chat, fake name and a captcha and you're in there. Is it working? I think it's working. Is it in the process of working? Uh, yeah. Nope, that didn't work. Oh, yeah, it did. There's everybody. Hey, how's it going, y'all? Good. All right. Uh, yeah, man. Today on the show, bad news, funny stuff, at least, you know, in ironical kind of ways. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, plenty of interesting stuff to talk about. And guess who? The great Gareth Porter. That's right. The heroic Gareth Porter is going to be on the show today. Guess what he's going to talk about? That's right. America's al-Qaeda terrorists in Syria. Yes, the entire political establishment is guilty of high treason. And don't misunderstand. Gareth won't call it that, but I will. Uh, but don't misunderstand me. It's not that they are loyal to Al-Qaeda. It's just that, you know, like, oh, Obama is a secret Muslim and he's helping the terrorists. No, 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 no. He's Ronald Reagan. That's who he is. And he's backing the terrorists. Against Russia and their allies, just like Ronald Reagan did. Why would Barack Obama back a bunch of Bin Laden nighthead chopper suicide bombers, Scott Horton? Because he's Ronald Reagan. Oh, and so are all the rest of the Republicans and the Democrats, too. With the slightest of exceptions. America's on the side of the al-Qaeda terrorists in Syria. Still. And yes, it's sort of kind of a complicated mess, but eh, I don't know, not really. But anyway, Garrett's going to explain it to you. You will see. Hmm. So, uh, hmm, what is this? Hmm. Anyway, um, so yeah, man, uh, huh, huh, huh. Oh, I was trying to get Trevor Tim on to talk about the Apple thing. 
I just don't know enough to talk about it other than I don't think the FBI should exist. And so no FBI, no FBI to demand that Apple crack the phone of the guy. So I don't know. But anyway, uh, Trevor Tim is a brilliant genius, and I, f- I could ever get a hold of the guy. Oh, not only is he a brilliant genius, he's a lawyer. I know that sounds like maybe it's a contradiction, but hmm, I like him. He writes really great stuff, dude. And, you know, a lot of liberals and conservatives and non-anarchists, even libertarians a lot of times, <clears throat> uh, Christopher Preble at Cato, they just, they always got to bake in one really horrible sentence. Like, of course we do need Hillary, kill, Hillary Clinton to kill some people, but just uh, not this one time or whatever. <sighs> I hate that. Well, Trevor Tim doesn't do that. I never find that one inartfully phrased sentence that would seem to leave open the, you know, possibility of legitimate mass killing or spying or whatever it is. And people really do that a lot. I think you notice that a lot, especially with uh, Christopher Preble at Cato. You always see like one horrifying pro-war statement in every single article, virtually every single article. And why? Like, who's he sucking up to? What credibility is that by him? No, no, no. See right here? I'm not that anti-war but to impress who i don't get it i like trevor tim man i'll never see that stuff with him he's good so i got an invite out to him uh daniel larison i want on to talk bad about the republicans because he's from the american conservative magazine i bring on leftists to attack hillary clinton and bernie sanders i bring on conservatives uh to attack the republicans and Daniel Larison, man, he's great. I hope you guys read Daniel Larison's uh, wonderful blog at the American Conservative Magazine. He's just as anti-war as hell, and and he's just never impressed by these goons, these GOP goons. And you would think that, oh, for a conservative, the all the pressure is on to find a Republican to champion or something. I just don't see that with him at all. Um, not even with Ron, I don't guess. But anyway, he's just as anti-war as can be. He's really great there um, at the American Conservative Magazine. And he wasn't able to do it today, but we got him lined up for next Tuesday. We'll be talking again with Larison. And hopefully by then there will be fewer Republicans for us to cover in the race. But somebody said to me, man, you keep attacking Bernie Sanders, but where's your Rubio coverage? Hey, guilty. I plead guilty. I mean, I have slammed the guy and I have interviewed, I guess, probably only Larison about him. Maybe Scott McConnell. Did we talk with McConnell about Rubio, too? I have done a couple interviews on the Rubio subject, um, but it's true that I haven't paid that much attention to him, even in just my own, you know, uh, ranting and raving, because he's such a clown. He's going nowhere. And I don't care how much Bill Kristol and the Weekly Standard and the National Review and Fox News insist that the American people love him or, or are gonna, but no, they're not. The guy is a complete idiot. And, you know, if there's one thing that the American people learned from the George W. Bush years is that when someone is obviously a complete idiot, that that's just not good enough. That, you know, whoever your president is, he could be a son of a bitch, but he can't just be too damn dumb for words because we're just not doing that again. We tried that. Everybody adopted that slogan. Remember in 2000? Well... I guess the governor is kind of a dumbass, but he'll be surrounded by all of his father's men, and they're really great guys. They'll be real adults compared to the, uh, you know, juvenile antics of the Clinton administration. Remember that? Junior, he'll be surrounded by really smart and grown-up guys telling him what to do. Yeah, not good enough this time. Everybody says, well, who's going to tell Rubio what to do? Cheney again? Uh Uh-uh. 
And that's, you know, kitchen table talk. I'm not talking about libertarians or conservatives or liberals or anyone. I'm just talking about regular ass working Americans who maybe don't even subscribe to these ideologies overall or in any particular way. But they just see Rubio on TV and they go, yeah, I don't what? He seems like a jerk. He is a jerk. And obviously he's an idiot. And it's not just because he messes up his talking points. It's that the reason he messes up his talking points is because that's all he has. So he doesn't actually know anything. You know people like this in your life who just can't be taught. Probably your boss at work, right? He just can't be taught. So you just throw up your hands and go forget it. <laughs> you know? Just say this, okay? That's who uh, Rubio is. So that's why I haven't spent enough time on him. But I mean, the answer is he's as bad as Netanyahu on everything. He's absolutely horrible. And he's sort of kind of opposed. The, the one thing you could try to spin for him is that he sort of kind of opposed bombing Syria in 2013. But he made it very clear that the only reason why is because it was going to be too small of a war. When John Kerry said it'll be a pinprick instead of a full-scale regime change against Assad... Then Rubio opposed it because not good enough. But he was bad on Libya, and he's bad on every other thing in the world, especially including, you know, all Israel-Palestine issues. Anyway, so we'll be, I'll, I'll try to focus on him a little bit, uh, extra in that Larison interview. Oh, and Trump, did you see Trump? Oh, yeah, we talked about this yesterday. Saying waterboarding's nothing compared to what he's gonna do to these guys. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. All right, well, everybody on Twitter says I'm supposed to care about the Pope fighting with Trump or Trump fighting with the Pope about the Mexican border. Eh. You know, uh, it does raise the question, I think, of whether uh, it could be someone could figure out a really smart way to, you know, flatter Trump in all of his economic understanding and brilliance, like if someone were to say to him, Mr. Trump, Donald, if you will, you've built an extraordinarily successful company. You clearly understand how business works. You are a master of capitalist economics, right? Right. So don't you think that we should legalize heroin and cocaine so that legitimate businessmen in America, can steal those markets away from the terrible, corrupt criminals and cartels that are causing so much violence in Mexico? Right. And then how's he going to answer against that? Other, I mean, I guess you could just say no. 
But it seems like if you said to him, you know, keeping in mind what an incredible company you've built, <laughs> a very successful company, don't you think that other very successful companies ought to sell the heroin and cocaine instead of the most ruthless throat slitting murderers? They have not gotten rid, they have not diminished the use of heroin and cocaine in America this whole time with all their drug wars. Shouldn't we use capitalist economics to oppose this terrible system, to attack the right from the right what are you, some kind of big government socialist who believes that some social engineering program of violence and mass incarceration is going to make people stop wanting to get high? That sounds like something some ridiculous liberal would believe in. Right, conservatives? Don't mix it up with law and order. We're talking about social engineering here. We're talking about using the power of the state to change the nature of mankind. Which is something that conservatives oppose, right? Because what are you? A bunch of pinko commies? See how easy that is? Free market capitalism says that if you outlaw drugs, you just create a black market. That's all. You don't get rid of drugs. You just empower criminals. Stupid. There. That's what all capitalists know and what socialists refuse to understand. See how easy that is to attack the right from the right and to whoop their ass on a subject like drugs? You do the same thing with liberals on guns, right? Hey, you know how outlawing drugs just creates black markets and turns those markets over to criminals? Yeah, same thing with gun laws. See how that works? Stupid? Yeah. I don't know why everybody's not a libertarian. I mean, I can see people being jaded about business if they believe somehow, if they let a liberal tell them that libertarianism means trust in business. It just means refuse to trust in centralized power to regulate business. That's all. It says trust in the forces of the market to protect the customers from business before you trust it to a bunch of totalitarian bureaucrats who are always wrong about everything and never succeed at anything. So who's got access to Trump? Who's going to ask Trump? You're a successful businessman. You may be the most successful businessman ever. You built a fantastic company. So doesn't it make sense to legalize drugs? Or what are you? Some kind of pinko socialist who wants to re-engineer society. You're Donald Trump. Do you know anybody who does cocaine? Do you know anybody who doesn't do cocaine because it's against the law, Mr. Trump? You're a successful businessman. You've built a very successful company. <sighs> I don't know. I'm just tired of... You know, my whole political life, this is part of why I'm such a radical when I was such a little kid. I learned about the horrors of the drug war and Ronald Reagan being a dope pusher and locking up generations of people in the name of the very same drugs at the very same time. 
I learned about this at such a young age. I've been so damned good on the drug war since I was like 10. And now I'm almost 40. Ah. Almost can be a longer concept the older you get, it turns out. I wouldn't have said almost when I was still, you know, five months away. Previous eras in my life. Anyway. I'm so tired of, Jesus Christ, even William F. Buckley got this right in the National Review in what, 1995 or something? Uh, and there is no, you know, oh, mothers against cocaine abuse who are just bound and determined to fight always for harsher and harsher drug laws. It just doesn't exist. It's the police unions and it's the prison corporations. Corrupt conflicts of interest that keep the drug war going has absolutely nothing to do with even stupid asses believing it's in the public interest not in a long time has that been the case and look drugs are illegal as hell and there's a heroin they call it epidemic In the United States right now, not that this could possibly have anything to do with record-breaking opium production in Afghanistan for the last 15 years in a row. And I mean record after record after record, like in the propaganda about the temperature. Uh, couldn't possibly have anything to do with American intervention in Central Asia. And even there. It's presumably it's a war on drugs in Afghanistan. It's not legal, legal. It's all smuggling and black market distribution and all of this criminality. And yet they could be driving down the price of painkiller drugs. For, you know, people with injuries and chronic pain and surgeries and whatever all around the world, they could be driving down the cost. It could be the opiate basket of the world. For legitimate medicinal purposes. Hell, they even make methadone out of this stuff, don't they? I don't know. I think they do. Anyway. Nope, just keep it a black market and then, you know what, it'll all go away. Just squeeze your eyes tighter and wish a little harder. There's one government program that's gonna work out. It's just got to. Any day now. Foreign and domestic, too. Hooray for the drug warriors. Let's think how many terribly deserving people they'll kill today. You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers? Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking... Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Hey, Al Scott here. Ever wanted to help support the show and own silver at the same time? Well, a friend of mine, libertarian activist Arlo Pignati, has invented the alternative currency with the most promise of them all. QR Silver Commodity Discs. The first ever QR code, one-ounce silver pieces. Just scan the back of one with your phone and get the instant spot price. They're perfect for saving or spending at the market. 
And anyone who donates $100 or more to The Scott Horton Show at scotthorton.org slash donate gets one. That's scotthorton.org slash donate. And if you'd like to learn and order more, send them a message at commoditydiscs.com or check them out on Facebook at slash commoditydiscs. And thanks. All right, y'all. Welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. On the line, I've got the great Gareth Porter. And, uh, whoa, what was that? Hey, Gareth, how are you? I'm good. Thanks, Scott. Glad to be back. Good, good. Uh, very happy to have you here. Now, listen up, everybody. Gareth Porter, he's my very favorite. He's the very best. And, uh, he's also the author of Manufactured Crisis. The Truth Behind the Iran Nuclear Scare, which is the book on the Iran nuclear program, uh, how it was never a weapons program, what America knew and when they knew it, and the politics behind all the lies and all the sanctions, and the deal and the rest. It's uh, really great. Manufactured Crisis, uh, Go Down in History, is the definitive book on Iran's nuclear program in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Uh, so... Uh, there's that. And then there's also this uh, at Consortium News, Obama's moderate Syrian deception, of course, also reprinted at antiwar.com under Gareth's name. You just find it at the right margin there. Um, so, uh, well, you start out here uh, quoting Obama on um, on the uh, Syrian fantasy. And so I just want to play that clip real quick. It's uh, Barack Obama talking to Tom Friedman. With respect to Syria, it's always been a fantasy, this idea that uh, we could provide some light arms or even more sophisticated arms to what was essentially an opposition made up of former doctors, farmers, <laughs> pharmacists, and so forth, and that they were going to be able to battle not only a well-armed state, but also uh, a well-armed state backed by Russia, backed by Iran, a battle-hardened Hezbollah, uh, th- that was never in the cards. Uh, and so, and so what is America's policy in Syria? I mean, start, if you want, you could go back to 2006 or you could start with 2011 or start with right now or whatever you think we need to know to understand. Cause you know, I understand bits and pieces, but I don't know if I could put it in a paragraph or even a whole well, article. I don't, I don't know if anybody can put it in a paragraph, Scott. I mean, this is a really, a fascinating mystery, a puzzle uh, to be to be solved. And um, part of the part of the puzzle is uh, and that, that was a very very interesting quote from uh, Obama about uh, the, the fantasy of of uh, creating moderate. Um, you know what? Let me play army. one more for you here, real quick. It's Ben Swan, who is uh, a local TV news reporter at the time. And he asked Obama, I'm afraid I edited him out of this clip, uh, and I shouldn't have, but he asked Obama, you're using drones to attack and kill al-Qaeda targets in Pakistan and Afghanistan and in Yemen. And Obama says, "Uh uh-huh. And he says, but you're back in their same side, at least, in the civil war in Syria. So that seems confusing, Mr. President. Could you please explain? And Obama said this. I share that concern, uh, and so... Oh, and pardon me, this is in the spring of 2012. I share that concern, uh, and so uh, what we've done is to say we will provide non-lethal assistance to Syrian opposition leadership that are committed to a political transition, committed to uh, a uh, an observance of human rights, 
we're not going to just dive in and get involved with a civil war that in fact uh, involves some elements of people who are genuinely trying to get a better life, but also involve uh, some folks who would over the long term do uh, the United States harm. And this is about a year into his CIA operation to arm these guys. But so right, now right. I'll get back to uninterrupting you. Please go ahead, sir. But but I mean, you you, you really framed this, I think, very, very well, because uh, this is yet another sign of uh, Obama's reluctance to go down that path, even as his government, his uh, administration, was indeed doing precisely what you said, that is providing lethal assistance to the uh, armed opposition, at that point increasingly taking on jihadist colors in Syria. And, uh, you know, no one, as far as I can tell, really understands precisely what was going on within that administration. But clearly there were two very, very different points of view about Syria. Um, Obama represented you know, as I said, reluctance to get into arming the opposition because he knew that it would, in fact, strengthen the, uh, the al-Qaeda franchise in Syria, al-Nusra Front, um, based on the Afghanistan precedent. I mean, this is well documented. And we know that it was Hillary Clinton um, who led the uh, position within that administration to arm the Syrian opposition, um, in conjunction with uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Turkey. And she, of course, was allied at that point with uh, the director of the CIA, uh, who was our friend who used, to, you know, who used to be commander of CENTCOM and the commander in Iraq and then in Afghanistan, uh, Petraeus. Petraeus. Um, and so, so there, were, there was a struggle going on, uh, a, a a fierce political struggle within that administration between two points of view. And, and it looks like Obama caved in uh, to, the, uh, to the Clinton uh, uh, position, which was, uh, first of all, to provide uh, you know, the, covert, the covert aid. And, and by the way, this, this interview that you have played takes place just uh, on the eve of uh, the Kofi Annan initiative, to try to bring about a political uh, a ceasefire heading towards a political uh, settlement in, in Syria. And uh, this is something I'm now getting into. Uh, I haven't started to write about, but, but I'm researching. Um, and and so, so this two-line struggle, if you will, within the administration, the, the Obama administration, was particularly you know, important uh, to the uh, failure of the Kofi Annan mission the Kofi Annan uh, effort uh, to, to promote a, a ceasefire. And I won't go into that further, but I just want to point out that, uh, that this is the background for my story, which is, of course, about the uh, fact that, you know, after 2012 particularly, um, the U.S. government went into uh, more and more support for arming the rebels. And uh, this then brings us to the current situation, which which is the context for my article, and that is the uh, John Kerry declaring that uh, there's not going to be any ceasefire agreement going going into effect unless the Russians agree to cease their attacks on 
what he calls the legitimate armed opposition. And so my article really uh, goes into the deception that that statement represents, a, a deliberate deception, obviously, because the armed opposition that he's talking about, the, the, the folks who have been getting CIA uh, weapons for the last uh, couple of years now, uh, are, in fact, part uh, and parcel of the al-Qaeda franchise in Syria, that is the al-Nusra Front, military uh, apparatus that has been uh, carrying on, uh, you know, an increasingly ferocious war in Syria. And they are not separated from the uh, al-Nusra Front and Arar al-Sham operations, either physically, uh, geographically, or organizationally. They are, in fact, fully partners in that. Uh, they coordinate their military operations with al-Nusra Front, they are located, they are co-located in some cases with Al-Nusra Front, Arar al-Sham troops. Um, and so it is really impossible for Russia to carry out any operation to separate the Al-Nusra Front center, which is Aleppo, uh, the city of Aleppo, from the Turkish border. That's the whole point of this offensive, uh, of this campaign. So uh, it, it is absolutely, uh, you know, unrealistic and deceptive to talk about uh, legitimate uh, armed opposition uh, units as though they were separate from El Nusra Front. That's the point of this article. Hold it. We'll be right back. Hey, Al Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. If this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Talking with Gareth Porter. Yeah, it is the same old thing for the last five years on this show. And that's the thing of it. We've been covering this thing all along. And, you know, of course, with the likes of um, the few former CIA heroes like Phil Giraldi and uh, Ray McGovern and Flint Leverett, who dared to tell the truth about the national security state and what it's up to and must have been three years ago or two and a half or so at least, 2013, maybe even 2012, where I got this quote out of Flint Lever. and said, hey, man, this whole thing about the Saudis are sending them all the guns and we're just training them and this and that. Uh, we're just giving them, you know, trucks and, and food aid and, and uh, medical aid and whatever. This is just, you know, as in the Reagan administration, as they would call it, plausible deniability, right? Like getting the Israelis to sell missiles to the Ayatollah Forum. Uh, doesn't mean it wasn't Ronald Reagan doing it. People hardly even mention the Israelis, and not just because it was the Israelis involved, but because it doesn't matter whether he got the Israelis to help him do it or not. It was still Reagan dealing with the Ayatollah in a way, you know, in a 
Uh, and anyway, so the point is Flint Leverett said, yeah, exactly. That's what this is. This is a former, you know, National Security Council official, highest level type analyst at the CIA saying that's exactly what this is, is plausible deniability to build up this army. Of course, we have the DIA documents from August of 2012 saying that this is what's happening is they're going to create a, an Islamic state in eastern Syria. And there's a danger that they could overrun western Iraq as well. They knew it all along. So, um, you know, to say even today to stick with this um, this narrative that, you know, there's the these uh, mythical moderates that we're supporting Jeb Bush in the in the debate the other night uh, slammed the Russians. They said they're just going to bomb ISIS, which they didn't say, but they're bombing our guys, too. He's talking about al-Nusra, who are still, if you ask them, they're not loyal to Jeb Bush. They're loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri, the butcher of New York City. Right, Gareth? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is the uh, the truth that uh, that the power elite in Washington dares not say. I mean, it's it's uh, a remarkable uh, collapse of the entire narrative surrounding U.S. policy in the Middle East, which um, you know, if it were fully discussed and understood by the American public, uh, you know. This entire endeavor in the Middle East would be through. I mean, they would just, they would have to pack up and leave. I mean, that's the way I view it. It <laughs> should be anyway. Yeah. Well, and God help us, the closest thing we're getting to the truth of this on the national political level right now is Donald Trump saying, you don't know who you're backing there. When yeah, he could be, yeah. he could take it one notch further and say, you're back in the Al Nusra front is who you're back in, and we all know who they are, the guys who knocked the towers down. Let's get back to the Bushes and their al-Qaeda policy again. You know, this is important yeah, stuff. Yeah, you're right, and, and, and I would like to see Bernie Sanders uh, go as far as Trump has gone, and, and hopefully he will before this, uh, uh, this campaign is finished. I mean, it's in his interest to clarify the difference between his own position and that of Hillary Clinton. So yeah. you know, I think it's, there's every reason to think that will happen. Although they completely uh, set him up for it in the last debate, and he absolutely balked and instead talked about Cuba. And they were like, do you want to criticize Hillary Clinton's Syria policy? And he's like, no. <laughs> so I thought he did. I mean, uh, he, you know, certainly well, he did a little before. Uh, but but anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, the, there's every reason. I mean, Hillary Clinton was the central uh, uh, force politically within the uh, Obama administration, pushing the line that we now see the full fruits of uh, uh, in Syria. To, to go ahead and uh, arm the opposition and to push uh, regime change to the fullest. Um, and again, I mean, I, obviously Obama somehow or other went along with this, despite the fact that he has publicly, as you've pointed out in this clip, uh, in, in uh, uh, sharing that clip with us, uh, clearly indicated that this was not a good idea. Yeah, and for all the exact right reasons, I mean... Yeah. You know, no doubt about it. Um, well, so now uh, this goes a, a bit beyond uh, where we are in the in your article here. But um, I wondered if you could help us understand what you think at least is going on as far as Turkish and Saudi intervention against right. the new consensus that America and Russia want to see, uh, you know, a ceasefire. Well, they want to see 
rock a sack and the Islamic State kicked the hell out of Syria, apparently. Um, I don't know if they agree on who should occupy the place after that, but um, that uh, apparently the Turks do not agree to this. And so I don't well, know. Well, I mean, clearly, clearly the Turks, neither the Turks nor Saudi Arabia has any real interest in fighting ISIS. I mean, that's definitely not what they're about. Uh, uh, you know, they both have their own uh, uh, political military interests, and and they are uh, to to uh, in the case of Turkey to deny the Kurds any uh, additional. I mean, they don't want them to have any uh, uh, mini state in in Syria, and definitely not a mini state that extends further to the uh, to the west, um, abutting the the. Uh, the Turkish uh, Syrian borders. So, I mean, that's that's why they are prepared, or they're at least threatening, to intervene in Syria militarily. Uh, and as far as the Saudis are concerned, I mean, you know, if they were to send troops to Syria, it would be for the purpose of uh, trying to help the their their clients, the uh, uh, the, the jihadists and uh, their allies. Uh, to to try to uh, overthrow the, the Assad regime, um, but but that still leaves open the question of whether this is really a serious plan or simply a feint. Um, and and I would just point out that both the Turks and the Saudis have publicly stated very clearly that they would not do anything uh, with regard to ground troops in Syria unless this were part of a coalition effort, of course, led by the United States. Right. So if this were to happen, it would be because the United States has made a decision to go in on the ground um, uh, in, a, in a major way. And I don't think, I still, you know, I, I understand that the United States put in um, special operations forces on the ground in Syria, um, but I don't think that they're prepared to have uh, the kind of operation that would involve uh, Turkish troops and Saudi troops in in Syria. I, I may be wrong about that. I'm not, you know, that that's not a firm conviction, but well, that, that's the way it looks to me right now. In other words, our military is basically fighting with the Kurds against the Islamic State. The CIA is backing the terrorists against Assad, but that's not the same as putting in the army there. Yeah, you would have only the CIA well, that, would be allied with uh, with the Turks and the Saudis on that one, but maybe not the Pentagon. Well, I, I mean, I think that, as I understand what you said, I think it's true. Uh, it's, it's extremely complicated. As I pointed out in a previous article, the uh, the CIA has been supporting uh, the Kurdish outfit that does, in fact, control a very large area abutting the Turkish border in the north northern Syria, um, because they have been the most effective uh, uh, fighting force against ISIS. Um, but but that same uh, uh, military uh, force, the, the Kurdish military force, the YPG, uh, also worked closely with the Assad regime uh, against ISIS, um, and uh, and and in some cases against uh, some of the forces that have been. Uh, trying to overthrow the the Assad regime that, that the United States is supporting, so you know this gets extremely complicated, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know that makes it much more difficult to to come up with very firm predictions about how this is going to play out. 
Yeah, it really is insane. I mean, well, back to the the faint. It's hard to take seriously that a Saudi army is going to do anything to anybody except lose to the Houthis uh, as they're doing on their own ground right now on the Arabian Peninsula. So I don't know what the hell they're actually supposed to really be able to carry out. And it just seems counterintuitive to think that Erdogan would go so far as to really pick a a real war with Russia in Syria, and especially when Obama seemingly has allowed his bluff to be called by the Russians. They called it. What the hell is he going to do about it? As Kerry said, what do you want me to do? Go to war with Russia? Kerry actually said that. Right, right. So in other words, well, our bluff fact, is called, right. we're backing down, right? You know, a reasonable, a reasonable interpretation of both the Turkish and Saudi uh, announcements of their intentions is that they are trying to prod the United States uh, to get in further into the war on the ground. I mean, in other words, they're they're saying, okay, you want us to do something? You know, show us, you know, show us the money. You know, and basically, you know, come up with a plan that is going to involve U.S. troops that go, to go in to overthrow the, the ISIS regime, the ISIS state, and then we'll join. Uh, and so, I mean, I think that, that that's a that's a real possibility. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a good possibility that that's what's going on. Yeah, they're all as confused as former Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel, who said, hey, what's our Syria policy? And they showed him the door. <laughs> we don't have one that right. we're willing to articulate. Get the hell out of here. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I mean, uh, my my understanding, my interpretation is that the reason that it's so impossible to decode what's really going on with U.S. policy uh, in any definitive way is that that it is, in fact, a, a policy. There isn't a single policy. There are competing policies going on. Right. Uh, there's back and forth between John Kerry, who, who, by the way, you know, at this point does, in fact, represent the Hillary Clinton policy, as far as I can see, uh, w- with some amendment. But, but basically, he is in line uh, with the Hillary Clinton view of what the United States should do. But I think he has been subject to White House uh, limitations because the White House doesn't really support that. Uh, and and that, that, therefore, that tension between the two uh, views on what the United States should do sort of continues to uh, inform what the United States is doing and what the United States is not doing. And, and so... Um, this this is still, to my mind, the subject that that the U.S. news media should have been probing and coming up with a uh, a good uh, sort of investigative overview of what's really going on in U.S. policy. But they don't really have any interest in doing that because it would then blow their access to both sides of the uh, of the policy uh, uh, struggle that's been going on. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that gets me, I mean, and I'm sorry, I'm keeping you over time. Can I keep you one more minute and ask you a thing? Sure. So, you know, I get it. There's a lot of groupthink and this and that, and there there are very vested special interests who have anti-Assad agendas that, you know, can ever be uh, quenched short of, you know, his lynching on the side of the road, Gaddafi style, because they put Israel first or whatever their interests are. Usually it's that. But... For the rest of everybody in on this consensus, oh, Assad must go, all this kind of thing, it's hard for me, well, let me try to make a comparison. Uh, 
the the communications between Anne Marie Slaughter and Hillary Clinton. That's from the New America Foundation, warmonger, yeah. humanitarian interventionist lady, Anne Marie yeah. Slaughter, and Hillary Clinton, her big sister, saying, Oh, what a great job convincing Obama to do the Libya war to save the people from Gaddafi, blah, blah, blah. Like, I can, I can, you can convince me, like watching Chewbacca in a Star Wars movie, I can suspend my disbelief and I can say, okay, that's a Wookiee, not an Englishman in a suit, that's a Wookiee. Well, this, this is a liberal who really is pro-war because she thinks it's good for people and who, if you try to confront her with, but what about that article in the Telegraph about the guy saying, yeah, we're veterans of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, where we're soaked in the blood of American soldiers, and we're the ones that you're fighting for against Gaddafi, thanks for the help, that she could somehow just block that out, somehow, you know, just uh, minimize it, spin it, rationalize it. They're the smallest part of the insurgency. That That's not really a thing. Okay, like, I'm, I'm suspending my disbelief for 2011 here, Gareth, but now help me with five years of backing al-Qaeda in Syria when Golani is saying, I love Zawahiri, over and over and over again, and no less than, I don't know, a hundred thousand people in Washington, D.C. and in the uh, suburbs there endorse this policy of backing the guys who hit the Pentagon and knocked down the goddamn towers in 2001. Seriously. Okay, I've got a good, I've got a good answer for your question, Scott. What's really been going on for the last few years is that Anne-Marie Slaughter, uh, Susan Rice, and Samantha Power have all been positioning themselves to become the Secretary of State under Hillary Clinton administration. Absolutely. That's the answer right. to your question. Right, but so that explains her co- her ability to win out over her double think and triumph and love Big Brother in in 2011. But I'm talking about everybody in D.C. Tens and tens and tens of thousands of people in D.C. All the Congress, all their staffers, all the uh, CIA and and DIA and or whatever Pentagon people, DOD people who are going along with this policy, all the National Security P- Council people who are going along with this policy. You know, I know. I'm sorry. I'm, I don't want to sound all hyperbolic and like silly on your um, on your uh, interview here, because I'm not like some kind of birther saying Obama is a Muslim and they're all guilty of treason in that sense. But I'm saying they are guilty of treason in the same sense that they are continuing Reagan's policy of the 80s in a post September 11th era where they're using these Saudi terrorist shock troops basically to get their dirty work done and yet that's not okay now is all I'm saying but they're doing it and I just wonder how that many grown adults can really deal with the dissonance going on with that they must have some they know who Golani is they know that Al Nusra they can read it in the paper even David ev- Sanger God, said God, listen, God, listen. Everybody you're talking about in Washington, all of the all of the above named uh, groups that you're talking about, uh, have vested interests of one kind or another in uh, supporting the status quo. Um, and I mentioned what I think are the most prominent ones, the most powerful people we're talking about here, the three the three ladies who worked under uh, Hillary Clinton and who, of course, wanted to get her support to be the next Secretary of State under a Clinton administration, uh, they, they have extremely powerful personal reasons, and all, everything else disappears into the ether in, in, in the face of, of 
personal and institutional vested interests. That's my answer. And, I, you know, I think that explains everything. That, yeah. that explains Everything about the national security state, in my view. So, in other words, my little metaphor there about how they could rationalize this stuff in a much shorter time frame and in, in, in circumstances, narrower circumstances in Libya in 2011, that that it the the confusion or the dissonance there, it doesn't change. It doesn't get worse even after five years of the same policy. It's still, there is no break in the consensus and the agreement that this is what must be done, even with all the you know, new information coming in yeah, showing an, how bad it is. There's an agreement to, as, as, as I quote uh, you know, in my article, sort of turn, turn our heads away from the truth uh, in order to uh, achieve both, you know, the, the national goal and the personal goals of the, of the people in question. Yep. So that that's, you know, the very most general way to sort of yeah, categorize this phenomenon. It is uh, really something to behold. Um, listen, I kept you way over. Thank you so much, Gareth. You're the best. All right. My pleasure. Thanks, Scott. Bye-bye. All right, y'all. That's Gareth Porter, Obama's moderate Syrian deception. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. This part of the Scott Horton Show is sponsored by Audible.com. And right now, if you go to audibletrial.com slash Scott Horton Show, you can get your first audiobook for free. Of course, I'm recommending Michael Swanson's book, The War State, The Cold War Origins of the Military-Industrial Complex and the Power Elite. Maybe you've already bought The War State in paperback, but you just can't find the time to read it. Well, now you can listen while you're out marching around. Get the free audiobook of The War State by Michael Swanson, produced by Listen and Think Audio at audibletrial.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. I like talking with Gareth Porter, man. He's smart. I says, how can they do this, Gareth? He says, it's good for their career. Yep. Who quoted the quote who said the thing about how it's really hard to get people to recognize the truth when it's in their financial interest not to do so? It's true. And it's not just a matter of complete dishonesty. It's just a matter of, you know, reason doesn't count for much. There are a lot more powerful incentives than what's really true as far as what goes on in people's minds about what they want to believe is true. Same for everybody. Anyway. So somebody asked me on Twitter, I, I told him, I got a story. It's actually not that good of a story. It was good of a story at the time, but now it's not good of a story. Hmm? Something. But the thing is, so I I love King of the Hill, man. I always did ever since way back. I'm actually blocked by Boomhauer on Twitter because I think just because I, maybe I answered him or something or retweeted him too many times. That sucks. Anyway, I love King of the Hill, man. And, uh, of course, the first time I ever heard that clip of Cotton Hill 
saying, sorry I'm late, I had to stop by the wax museum again and give the finger to FDR. I says, what a great clip for playing on the radio. I have lots of clips that I never do play because I don't really have the good context for them, but I do have lots and lots of clips. What a great clip to play on the radio, and particularly I would use it back in the days of chaos. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I would use it when I was actually running late. I would start the show with that. But anyway, um, now it just runs at the top of the hour, a little uh, sound montage thing in place of the Onion Radio News now on LRN. For those of you listening later in MP3 format, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, the point is, the first time I ever heard that, I thought, hey, what a great clip. I need to get it. And then I would see it again from time to time, but I never could memorize, for whatever reason, which episode it was where that was the clip. Or when I did remember it, I would be far away somewhere or, you know, whatever, wasn't recording, didn't have access to hook it up to my my TV, to my computer, or whatever it was. I couldn't get the damn soundbite. For years and years, I wanted this soundbite. This is all ancient history now, which is why it's not important or funny. But back then, it was like this uh, quest. You know, like I'm uh, Indiana Jones, something like that. On a quest for this uh, goddamn Cotton Hill clip. And then one day, I'm over at my buddy's house, and we're watching King of the Hill. And, hey, look. There it is. It's the one. The father and son shooting competition. So I says to my buddy who basically, you know, does nothing but sit around on the couch watching TV all day. Man, you ever see the father and son shooting competition uh, episode of King of the Hill? You call me. You got to. You remember. I was looking him in the eyes. You remember. Do you ever see this episode? You call me. And then about three years after that, this is, yeah, ancient history, really, in the scheme of things. Like three years later, he calls me and he goes, man... Did you ask me one time about uh, to call you if it was the father and son shooting competition episode of King of the Hill? And I go, yes. And he goes, it's on right now. So I go, yes. So I got the clip. And that was the amount of effort that I went through to get it. And that was now probably 10 or 12 years ago or something. And so not very exciting to anybody except me. But I was really glad to get it. And somewhere I have a version where Hank going, oh, <laughs> is cut out. But then the version that gets played, I don't know what happened to that version. Maybe that version's gone. The version that gets played includes Hank going, oh, <laughs> God dang it, Bobby. Well, so that's what that is. And yeah, I hate FDR too. President for life, Roosevelt. What a jerk. Um, yeah, I got a ton of news to talk about. Wars and tortures. I'm not sure which uh, wars to talk about first. Should we do Libya? Let's do the F-35. So there's a new piece um, about the F-35 here. Didn't I have a hard tongue piece too? Anyway. The F-35... It's old hat. I've been covering this for a long, long time. Uh, people, I think, are catching on. that This is the world's greatest boondoggle ever. The F-35 is a piece of junk. It is overmatched, far outmatched by the F-16 from the 1970s. Even weighted down 
with extra fuel tanks and missiles. The F-16 beats its ass in a dogfight. It's not fast. doesn't climb well. It's not stealthy. You can't fly it at night. The computer system doesn't work at all. That helmet doesn't work at all, and if you eject, it'll break your neck. You can't fly it uh, anywhere near lightning, I always say that, it, or any kind of moisture or whatever. The maintenance on it is a zillion dollars per hour worth of maintenance. Absolutely, you know, off the charts compared to maintaining any other aircraft for, you know, per hour flown. And, you know, this article is the entire computer system doesn't work. They've been building this thing for 25 years. Oh, the camera doesn't work. It has a 1990s model camera on it or whatever that cannot distinguish anything on the ground. They're trying to cancel the A-10 and use this for close ground support. It's just going to be, would be, could be nothing but an endless series of uh, friendly fire incidents of Marines and Army troops being uh, blown to bits by their own Air Force, uh, like the B-1 bombers in Afghanistan. And anyway, um, uh, yeah, this article is mostly about the software. They also talk about the um, the uh, ejection seat. It'll kill you. But, you know, these things, the engine block, just the, uh, the engines just completely break. They've had them uh, catch fire repeatedly on the tarmac. The aircraft carriers can't withstand the jet propulsion of the vertical takeoff, which is, you know, far more powerful than a Harrier, and it'll burn a hole right through the damn deck if they don't get a whole new different kind of uh, deck put on the aircraft carrier. Oh, and by the way the marine version, it can't communicate with the aircraft carrier's computer system at all. At all. The whole thing is just a big FS job. That's all it is. And uh, this guy, Pierre, what's his name? Uh, From Lockheed, uh, did this great uh, interview years ago with... um, uh, with a Canadian news service, all you got to do is type in F-16 designer, F-35. And he explains how the only reason that the F-16 works at all is because basically rogue engineers at Lockheed created it under the noses of their, you know, uh, corporate bosses. And they said, let's make a jet that actually is good and not that it was really great but they made it better at least it's you know amounts to good now uh, but he says in that article this guy pierre whatever the hell it is you just type in f16 f35 designer those keywords in the video will come right up it's an interview of a guy who's wearing a blue shirt he's kind of bald on top and he says that the purpose of the F-35, that the F-35 works great. It works great. And he's not spinning for him. He's saying the purpose of it is not the one you've been told. Air superiority, protect the lives of the pilots. Would you think that the U.S. government values the lives of their fighter jocks? Yeah, right. Like that has anything to do with this. The purpose of the F-35 is to transfer wealth from the American people to the shareholders 
and corporate executives of Lockheed Martin Inc. Dummy. Oh, and the banks that service the gigantic transfer payments to their welfare account. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. I'm live here on Liberty Radio Network, scotthorton.org, etc. Hey, thank you very much for everyone who's donated to the new server fund. I really appreciate it. Uh, I have a guy who promised some matching funds, and, uh, well, I don't want him to have to you know, match half of the whole thing, but uh, people already donated a little bit more than half as it is, so you won't have to donate the whole half. I guess we're pretty much done. You you can feel free to keep sending money if you want. Uh, of course, during this little mini fun drive for the to raise money for the servers, I'm still doing the kickback, same as always, the books or the audio books or the uh, silver rounds, the QR code commodity discs, uh, those are all going out as usual, so uh, the more money you have, the more fun it is to give away, right? The more you hate the state, the more you love me. So, I mean, right? Yeah. So, scotthorn.org slash donate, if you're into that. I guess the new servers, I don't know if they've arrived yet. I don't. I know they haven't been transferred over yet, but uh, looking forward to the day coming very soon. When all the uh, 404 errors and so forth will be a thing of the past there. It's a lot of data. All right, cool. So, yeah, thank you again, everybody, man. I really do appreciate it. Um, yeah, so, you know, I almost don't know uh, which direction to go with all the news. There's so much of it. How about this from Vice? Leaked document indicates there may soon be EU military involvement in Libya. They meant again. The EU is planning an extension of its military operation against human traffickers, known as SOFIA, which could eventually include sending ground troops to war-torn Libya. According to a confidential document shared with Vice Alps and with WikiLeaks, by a high-placed source in an EU member nation who requested anonymity, the Sophia mission is ready to move into Libyan territorial waters to stop people smugglers there, but it will not do so until it is invited by Libyan authorities, whoever that is. I added that part, sorry. However, Libya does not have a unified national authority that can extend such an invitation, torn as it is between two rival governments and other armed groups. The document, a report addressed to the European Union Military Committee as well as the Political and Security Committee and written by the Italian officer commanding the Sofia force, also makes mention of a phase three of the operation. They may refer to the eventual presence of EU troops in Libya. 
again, once a national government to work with, has been established. Well, in other words, after the Americans invade, which Obama says here, this is Reuters, Obama says he will try to block Islamic State from digging in in Syria. Yeah, well, guess who is the leader of the Islamic State in Syria, everybody? Oh, yeah. See, I'm trying to heighten up these production values. Uh, drum roll. Now's the part of the show where we ask, and yeah, who do you think is the leader of the Islamic State in Libya? That's right, Obama's friend, Abdel Hakim Belhaj. That's right. Just put his name, Abdel Hakim Belhaj, in Google Images, and you will see him awarding John McCain. The Al-Qaeda Medal of Freedom. <laughs> I swear to God, man, look at it. The guy was on the record in no later than, what, June of 2011, saying, yeah, I fought against the Americans in Iraq. He was part of Al-Qaeda in Iraq under Zarqawi. And he bragged about it. Uh, you know, 4,000 of the 4,500 American soldiers that were killed or thereabouts were killed by the Sunni-based insurgency and then to uh, some very goodly percentage of those were killed by the Al-Qaeda and Iraq suicide bombers. Zarqawi's men. Uh, like Bell Hodge, well, he wasn't a suicide bomber, not yet. He, You, you go suicide bomb, he's going to run things. <clears throat> he's going to stay here and live. And anyway, I know it sounds like some kind of Donald Trumpian birther crap, but it's really not. Obama took the side of these guys, and everybody knew it all along. It was right there in the in the press. We discussed it at length with people like Patrick Coburn, the best journalists, former CIA officers and whatever, in real time, long before Gaddafi was killed. Hell, the war took nine months. Go back, check those 2011 archives if you don't believe me. If you weren't around then, it was as obvious as obvious could be. It was a as slow motion, a slow motion train wreck as the march into Iraq War II. Taking the side of the bad guys from Iraq War II in Libya after Bush made a deal with Gaddafi. And I'm not saying that America should back military dictators. But I'm saying we should not be backing bin Ladenite suicide bombers in their revolutions to overthrow them either. Hello, guys. Huh? Um, yeah. I guess, as Gareth would say, yeah, because it's in my professional interest to keep being anti-war. <laughs> it's in my institutional interest to point out that, are you guys sure you want to back Al-Qaeda, guys? Because that doesn't seem right. So Obama says Tuesday, the U.S. will continue to try to prevent the Islamic State from establishing a foothold, which they already long have, in Libya, where political instability has created an opening for the militant group. Quote, we will continue to take actions where we've got a clear operation and a clear target in mind, Obama said at a news conference in California. He said the U.S. will work with coalition partners to make sure that, quote, as we see opportunities to prevent ISIS from digging in in Libya, we take them. 
So I guess, you know, maybe the good news, if you want to look for some good news there, is that it'll wait for Jeb or Trump to actually invade and try to build up a an army and hold a purple-fingered election and all this kind of crap. I really don't think it'll be Jeb. I really think now I was wrong for all those years. And you got to admit that Trump is sort of a black swan type of a thing, that all other things being equal, Jeb was the McCain of this one. Everybody else is disqualified for all their other various reasons. And at the end, you're left, just like always, with the centrist, rhino, liberal, compassionate, conservative, Republican, swing voter getter gets the nomination, right? Just like John Kerry in 04, just like Mitt Romney in 012, just like Al Gore in 2000, just like George W. Bush in 2000, just like Barack Obama in 08. Well, Barack Obama was a little bit of an anomaly, but just barely, only in PR terms, not in his true position. That's why he was allowed to take power in 08. But Trump has that bipartisan reach without really being a rhino and liberal Republican as much as just all over the damn place and appealing to a broader crowd than the local base. Hey, I'm Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson, Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. So, yeah, man. I'm sorry, I had- tangents trump tangents and commercial breaks what i meant to say was uh i expect donald trump future president trump i don't think hillary stands a chance against him i'm sorry i just i don't see any way around it now um president trump he'll invade libya the generals will say isis is there and he'll say go there and knock the hell out of them and then uh but that's the whole thing about bunch of non-state, fourth-generation warfare-type actors is that knocking the hell out of them doesn't get rid of them. Just makes more of them. Staying makes more of them, too. So, third choice, back off? Come on. The American Empire, back off? So the conflict's going to get nothing but worse under President Trump. It's going to be a disaster. And, you know, he said, they asked him last night, well, who are you taking advice from on foreign policy? And he said, uh, well, I won't answer you. It's a secret because in about a week I'm going to announce my foreign policy team. And, you know, he said before he really likes John Bolton, who, of course, is not actually a neoconservative, but is a right-wing nationalist who is best friends with the neoconservatives and agrees with them about everything. But I think he's much more of a lifelong, you know, Goldwater type. Never was a Trotskyite like all of his buddies. Uh, I don't know if John Bolton will be one of the picks or not, but God help us. Although that would do a lot to win over the neocons for, uh, you know, bringing on the war party into trusting him 
is if John Bolton says, trust me, man, I was talking to him and boy, the blood we're going to spill, you know, that that'll settle him down over at commentary magazine a little bit, huh, guys? I don't know. Yeah, Donald Trump. You know, did I tell you this one where the other day just flip flop right over on a Syrian safe zone? And yeah, it's just words, but still. Uh, this is exactly the position of Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton that he's been attacking all this time. That you don't even know who you're backing over there. I don't want to overthrow the government in Damascus. I just want to knock the hell out of ISIS, he says. You guys are crazy for wanting to overthrow Damascus. Well, guess what Syrian safe zone means? It means an invasion of Syria against the will of the government in Damascus. And quite contrary to the wishes of the Russians who have already called our bluffs going on four months ago now, thank you. So what in the hell is he talking about? An American intervention in the western half of Syria. Never, even, I'm not endorsing against Islamic State, but I'm just saying, for him to frame intervention, um, you know, in the western part of Syria, which he didn't say that, but yeah, he doesn't mean safe zone over in Raqqa. For him to say safe zone, I mean, that's when everybody in D.C., when they talk about that, they mean on the Turkish border in the northeast, uh, pardon me, in the northwest of the country. That's what he's talking about. And, um, you know, for him to to have that as a talking point for anything but the exact kind of irresponsibility that a Trump presidency is going to avoid just goes to show he's not even loyal to his own narrative. He's, He's, you know, never mind having actual principle. He doesn't even have the principle that his arguments better make sense at all. And considering how much a lot of the neocons seem to completely hate and fear him for, I think, these same reasons, you would think that he would try to be at least a little more consistent so that they know where they stand with him anyway. I don't know. But it just goes to show anybody who's going, yeah, well, you know, he's not really a neocon. Yeah, he's horrible on all the neocons' worst issues. Maybe they think he's too hard to control, but he says he wants to move the embassy to Jerusalem. He's, you know, among the worst and among the worst propagandists in the nation against the Iran deal, even though he clearly has not the first clue about what's in there or what any of it means or anything. He was talking about we can't afford to give them the billions of dollars. He says it's 150. It's more like 50. But anyway, We can't afford to give Iran $50 billion. That's fine. The U.S. government shouldn't exist to tax anyone to give uh, American tax money to anyone. Got, Got an agreement there, but guess what? It's not America's money. It's Iranian money that the American government stole that now it is releasing back to them. You see how that is quantitatively and qualitatively and scientifically and absolutely an entirely different thing? And he didn't even know that. It's not that he was lying. It's that he didn't have the first clue what he's talking about. Uh, he put out a TV ad campaigning for Netanyahu in Netanyahu's last election. Talking about what a great leader he is. Um, and there's something else where he's absolutely horrible on Israel issues. I forget. But anyway... Uh, anybody who's thinking, oh, good, what a, a breath of fresh air on foreign policy compared to what we've been stuck with, uh, I'm saying, yeah, no, get your head out of the clouds, man. At best, 
this guy is absolutely unreliable. And more likely, he's going to take advice from the likes of John Bolton, if not specifically John Bolton. I would not, I guess I would be surprised to see John Bolton not on the list when Trump announces it next week, if he does in fact announce next week his list of foreign policy advisors. But I think you'll find plenty of bad guys. You're not going to find Robert Pape and Andrew Basevich and, you know, Phil Giraldi <laughs> or, uh, you know, some uh, Daniel Larison or, or uh, you know, some uh, important conservative voices for peace. You're not going to find anything like that. And I guess it's possible that he would be a strong enough president that he would just say, thank you for the advice, Secretary Bolton, but um, we're not going to go that far this time. Then again, it seems like uh, if John Bolton just said, you know, you created a very successful business. You are one hell of a businessman. You're probably the greatest businessman of all time. You're the author of The Art of the Deal. We should bomb them. Bomb them then I think Trump would probably say, okay, you're right, we should bomb them, because after all, I built a very successful company. <laughs> My top men say that we got to start a war now. And why wouldn't we? How's anyone going to stop us? That's what people with power think about everything. Yeah, Donald Trump. Not looking forward to it. Was there one more thing on on uh, Israel-Palestine? You know, he came out yesterday and said, oh, you know, I would be neutral. And then he said, you know, but friends of mine say no way the Palestinians are just raised to hate the Israelis irrationally, and so there's no dealing with them. However, you know, I don't know, it'd be worth a try, something like that. So this is the kind of thing where you and I would just go, ah, give me a break. But... um it's getting him in trouble. Donald Trump says that he would be impartial in a dispute between foreigners and nothing like equal powers, the occupied and the occupiers. And that's so far from good enough. What they want to hear is, I swear to put Israel before the United States always, no matter what even if it means backing our enemies against your enemies. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, Donald Trump. Of course, he said before, uh, anybody who's a accused terrorist, they ought to kill their family members, too. He said waterboarding is nothing compared to the tortures that he's going to use in the upcoming Trump presidency. Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it tastes good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code SCOTT and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. All right. Welcome back. So I got some Afghanistan and some other things to talk about, but I missed this question in the chat room. Sorry. 
I'm not used to it. It's in the wrong place in my chat room until I get my new computer. Um, yeah, so the thing is, someone in the chat room asked, what's the difference between Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State? Um, and so the answer is that the Islamic State is a breakoff group of Al-Qaeda. And <clears throat> this goes to the definition of Al-Qaeda in the very first place, is that there was the Azam group, which the CIA and the Saudis and the Pakistanis backed, against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan in the 80s. And then there was Egyptian Islamic Jihad, which, you know, I don't know if they were backed by the CIA exactly or what. I mean, certainly their guys went and fought in Afghanistan too. But so Zawahiri was with Egyptian Islamic Jihad, and he convinced bin Laden, or so the story goes, uh, seems right, convinced bin Laden that there failed half-assed attempts at jihad all around the region and they're going nowhere because America backs all the dictators in the region. So what they ought to do is they ought to merge their groups together and they ought to try to convince all the different Islamist groups, Arab and otherwise, uh, but of course mostly uh, centered on Arabs, um, Egyptians and Saudis, uh, to join together to take the fight to the United States under the theory that we have to fight the far enemy first. As James Bamford puts it in his book, A Pretext for War, that they saw it as the Americans were already at war with them, but indirectly through the Israeli government, through the Saudi government, through the Egyptian government. And the only way to end that would be to provoke the U.S. into invading Afghanistan like they did with the Soviet Union, bog them down in a decade-long war if that's what it takes to completely bankrupt the United States and force its empire to self-destruct and to get the hell out, the same as they did with CIA help to the Soviets in the 1980s. That was the plan. And um, so it worked. And not only did America do what they wanted in Afghanistan, but then they went to Iraq, too. And then there was created the local franchise of al-Qaeda, by, I'm a, I'm a, by, pardon me, by Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. And of course, Colin Powell in his 2003 UN speech where he lied us into war claimed that this was the link between Saddam and Osama, that he worked for Osama and he was friends with Saddam. But that wasn't true. He told Osama, no, I don't want to work for you. I want to fight the King of Jordan. And he had his own group, Ansar al-Islam, that was up in American-protected, autonomous, northern Iraqi Kurdistan which Saddam Hussein did not control. It had been autonomous since the end of the first Gulf War under American no-fly, no-drive zone protection. And uh, that's where uh, Zarqawi was. And you might even remember, if you're old enough uh, to know back from back then, that there was all this mythology about how Saddam Hussein had given him a wooden leg. Well, that was, of course, a total lie. He had no relation to Saddam Hussein other than being the subject of a capture-this-son-of-a-bitch order by Saddam to his Mukbarat. Okay, but that's how they lied us into war was by pretending Zarqawi was the link between Saddam and Osama. All right, so then, or one of the links, they also tortured lies out of a guy named uh, Sheikh Al-Libi and others. But anyway, um, so then uh, when America invaded, they turned, as as Donald Trump put it, they turned all of Western Iraq into the Harvard of terrorism, into a massive, um, you know, bin Ladenistan and the, the Sunni, because America took the side of the Iranian-backed, uh, also Iranian-backed Shiite majority in their civil war against the Sunnis, they pushed the Sunni population of Iraq right into the arms of the Islamic State. Well, first of all, into insurgency and into al-Qaeda in Iraq, which became the Islamic State. So um, uh, 
Al-Qaeda in Iraq was the smallest part of the Sunni insurgency, and they eventually were marginalized in 2006 after the Sunni, uh, you know, tribal leaders and former Ba'athist commanders of the major part of the Sunni insurgency lost the capital. They decided to work out a ceasefire with the Americans. The Americans decided to let them work out a ceasefire with our side if they would turn on the Al-Qaeda guys. And they did turn on them, and they really marginalized the hell out of them. And the former secular Ba'athist government military leadership and the tribal leaders were the bosses of Sunni Stan until, almost inexplicably, but like I always say, Obama took the side of the veterans of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Oh, Zarqawi was killed in 06. That was when they first tried to name themselves the Islamic State of Iraq, and that was part of what pissed off the Iraqi Sunni population so bad, is they were a bunch of foreigners, mostly a bunch of Saudis and Egyptians, trying to tell them what to do. And they didn't want to do what they were told by a bunch of Saudis and Egyptians. Well, so um, now Obama takes the side of the veterans of al-Qaeda in Iraq in Libya, and then as we talk about endlessly on the show, especially today, uh, in Syria as well. So... The, the more Al-Qaeda in Syria, as bin Laden had decided to do years before, changed their name and started calling themselves the Al-Nusra Front, uh, which means, I believe, something like the Association of Helpers, Jabhat al-Nusra, and uh, something like that. And anyway, those were the guys who, who really you know, were the dominant force in the Sunni-based insurgency in Syria. Not the marginal force like in the days of the Iraq War, but the dominant force uh, in the Syrian civil war, virtually from the very beginning, from uh, certainly at least 2012. All right, so then you have two major factions of al-Qaeda in Iraq. One is dominated by Syrians and a guy named Golani, and another is dominated by Iraqis. No longer do Saudis and Egyptians rule al-Qaeda in Iraq in Iraq. Uh, or in Syria, they're run by Iraqis and Syrians. And the, the newer generation in charge of al-Qaeda in Iraq at this point is run by a guy named Baghdadi, who basically, you know, uh, forged his leadership role in the American prison at Camp Bucca during the war. And after he got out, uh, and the leader before him was killed, I think, by Americans and Iraqis working together in 2010, then he became the new leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq and Iraq. So then in 2013, I'm sorry I'm going on so long, but it's interesting to me. I don't know if you're keeping up with me or not. But the point is, in 2013, there was a fight. And um, Baghdadi said, we're going to name this al-Qaeda, uh, pardon me, the Islamic State of, of uh, or just the Islamic State, I guess, uh, I don't know exactly their, you know, Arabic term for it, but the way it was always interpreted was of Iraq and Syria. Both. Well, um, so, Ayman al-Zawahiri said, and, and, oh, and said Golani had to do whatever he said. So Golani, the leader of al-Nusra, Syrian al-Qaeda, said, no, I don't want to do that. We're supposed to just keep fighting, and I'm waiting for al-Zawahiri to say what to do from his, you know, mother's basement hiding out in Pakistan right now. Or, you know, wherever he's being kept or whoever's keeping him, I don't know for sure. But anyway, um, so Zawahiri says, 
No, don't declare a caliphate yet. That's the whole premise here, right? As long as the American empire is involved over here, your caliphate can't last. We've got to completely bankrupt the American empire and drive it completely out of the region first, and only then can we do it. That's the al-Qaeda strategy. So he said, don't declare caliphate yet. Baghdadi, go home to Iraq and leave Syria to Golani, and then I'll tell you what to do later. Well, Baghdadi said... What's Iraq? I don't know what you're talking about, dude. This is all Mohammed land to me. How do you like that? And declared himself, well, a couple of, I guess it was a year later. Well, he first of all, he named it the Islamic State, took over the city of Raqqa in eastern Syria. And then uh, about a year after that, a little more than a year after that, because after all, Zawahiri couldn't enforce his ruling. He could just say it. In fact, he sent an emissary to give the instructions and Baghdadi had him killed. And it was like an OG Al-Qaeda guy from way back, they said. And Baghdadi killed him and said, yeah, what are you going to do about it, Zawahiri? About a year after that, about six months later, his guys raised the black flag over Fallujah. They didn't roll in in a big convoy, I don't think, into Fallujah. They just kind of crept in there, made their alliances, and took over the town of Fallujah in... um in Ambar province, west of Baghdad there. And uh, six months after that, the giant convoy rolled in from Syria. They took bulldozers to the berm between Syria and Iraq and the old Sykes-Pico border there. And they rolled into, Mo- into uh, Mosul, where then about a week later, late June of 2014, Baghdadi got up on a balcony, just like Mussolini, and gave his big speech and declared himself despot basically um not just the leader around here but the divinely appointed caliph and so right now i don't know how much they really fight against each other i mean you know you hear the war party say oh you notice how assad and the islamic state don't fight each other well that's not true actually they do fight each other uh but to the degree that you say it's true that well al-nusra fights against assad more than isis does if you want to put it that way that's partly just because of their differing tactics again al-qaeda's marching orders are just keep fighting save the what the oh man i didn't hear the music playing Save the caliphate for later. So anyway, show's over, so that's it. That's as much as I could fit in way too long.